Hey, Renter Retires, it's Adam Schrader here with another episode, and I am joined today by the investment maverick himself. This is Mr. Chad Sutton. We're going to talk today about his journey, a little bit about what's going on in the real estate world, but first off, Maverick, I'd, uh, I appreciate you joining us today. Hey, happy to be here. Thanks for the invite, and happy to talk to your listeners today. Yeah, so first off, where, uh, where'd you get the Maverick? Is that your call sign? You wear it on a on a helmet or well i think everyone here has probably seen top gun you know and then hopefully the newest one that was very well done if you haven't seen it go do it um look i'm a recovering aerospace engineer i, I spent a long time in aircraft engine development and things of that sort uh prior to even my my finishing corporate career uh so i think my marketing team had a little fun with that one and you know <laughs> we each have fun names now the five partners in quattro capital you know where for example my partner kim who is the prior one was director of asset management is now the guardian, right? So she kind of guards the ship and everything like that. Whereas I am the investment maverick. I'm kind of like, I guess I'll compare myself to Tom Cruise flying around an F uh, F 14 Tomcat. I love that. But you know, that was a little, little fun intertwining there with my history and, and aviation and things of that sort. But that is what I do. I am the, anything deal structure related, anything fund structure related, anything acquisition, disposition, refi, capital markets. I, I am the deal brain in the group. So I run a team of, of deal experts and, you know, that is, uh, that's really where the, the artistic side of it is. It, it, think of me as the hunter and, and the guardian would be the, the farmer, if that makes sense. <laughs> I love it. So tell us a little bit about how you got started. What was the first deal that you did and, uh, yeah, how did that, uh, how did that progress? Yeah. So interestingly enough, if anyone's heard my story here, it's everywhere, you know, just check me out on podcasts or on Google, but, uh, I'm a third generation real estate investor and I didn't really realize it as a kid. I, so my first deal, I guess, is technically rehabbing a house as a kid that my granddad owned. So I, I, uh, I was doing that, but I just thought he worked on houses. I didn't know that he owned them, but, um, you know, years and years later when my, you know, very major figure in my life, my grandfather passed away. That's a whole other story. Um, I got involved with the business, you know, and after trying to replicate the single family side in Tennessee, uh, my aunt, actually, who's my partner in the business today, one of them, him, we decided, you know, we should look at other asset classes and think about where where is the demand, the market economics, like what what is what is the best piece of real estate to be in? And I think it's no secret. This was years ago, but now the cat's out of the bag. That secret was multifamily, right? We love the that you have a hundred little income streams under one building, for example. We love that you get economies of scale. We love that there's better lending options. We love that the the desirability of the asset is there for, I think, for years to come. And the the supply and demand metrics were right for it, right? So we we get into multifamily and you know the first one we did, which I highly recommend this. If you're if you're trying to do deals out there, don't step into the ring out of your weight class and go try to buy something that's like this massive cruise ship, you know, the 210 units. Go buy, you know, a tugboat or something like that. <clears throat> you know, something you can get your hand around. Like you don't drive cruise ships before you drive a speedboat or a tugboat, right? Same thing, you don't fly commercial airliners before you fly a Cessna, a little bitty single engine thing, right? It's worth getting your head around a 20 or 30 or 40 unit deal. You know, 40 is probably on the bigger side of what I'd buy out of the gate. And that's what we did. You know, we bought a, a mom and pop owned 35 unit building. And I, actually, I told a lie. If these guys listen to the episode, they'll they'll come and call me about it. The first one we bought was not mom and pop owned. The next three we bought were. But it was owned by two young guys who had bought it from the mom and pop owner and the builder. 
And it was a great, a great first asset. It wasn't dirty. It was built by an architect who lived on the property. He built it for himself as his retirement plan. So think about an architect building something for his own benefit. It's going to build it easy to maintain and high quality. And that was the first deal. You know, I mean, we, we got it. We got proof of concept, figured out that, okay, you can actually increase rents by doing X, Y, Z to the building. And we learned a lot with that first little tugboat that uh, we recently, I, I'm sorry to say, we just about a month ago finally sold it, made a killing on it. It was like a 75 IRR because we bought it way back in the day, you know? And, um, you know, yeah, get your head around small stuff first, folks. So you mentioned that the cat's out of the bag when it comes to multifamily. Does that mean that, you know, whether or not you, it's not necessarily as good a time to invest now as it was before? Or how has investing in multifamily changed as more and more people have come to, you know, step into that space. Yes, I would say now is a horrible time to invest, and you should not. <laughs> no, I'm, not, I'm kidding. You can use that as a soundbite for the people to come in. No, look, folks, it's always a great time to invest in real estate. Your strategy is changes. Okay, so what I'll tell you is, <clears throat> we are we're a little bit out of whack with where interest rates are and where values are. So they are falling. Values are falling which is a good thing. Don't let that scare you if you're invested in the syndication or you're invested in another deal, right? Or you own a deal. Like the pricing only matters if you sell the deal, right? It's just like stocks. Like the price can go up and down, but unless the company goes out of business or you sell the deal, it doesn't matter, right? So don't be that person chasing the news. But what I, what I will say is, you know, it's, it's always a great time to invest in the basic human needs. And what, I mean, let's just say what they are, right? Food, water, shelter. I mean, I've heard them said different ways as well, but shelter is typically a common denominator in basic needs. So it's not going anywhere. Like, I don't care how bad the economy gets. No one's ever going to say, gee, I don't need housing. No one's ever going to say, gee, you know, that especially those who are in the renter demographic, well, I don't really like how much apartments cost. So I'm just not going to rent anymore. You know, it, and that's assuming they can even buy a house, right? So yeah, they were called always going not field men, right? We're always going to need it. So your strategy changes. You know, I think I think that you have to be careful what you go after right now, and you have to make sure the cash flow makes sense because whatever you buy today, you're probably not selling it in eighteen months. You're probably I think those days are gone. You're probably we got some quick wins, which is great, but I think you're holding it for you know four, five, six, seven years, maybe longer. And so you just need to set it up for success. You know, you only get in trouble in real estate if you run out of time or money. And as long as you can buy a deal and, and, and have it set up today to where you can really look at the long term, like real estate is a five to 10 year game, y'all. And so don't be like, what I challenge you as investors to think about. Don't be the investor who chases IRR and chases cash on cash, okay? Because I can make a spreadsheet say whatever the hell I want to get you to invest. And, and I hope people don't do that, but some do, right? It, it's not about, okay, does this deal cash flow in the first quarter or not? What it's about is, is this a safe deal? Is it in a good area? Is it a quality piece of real estate that's going to be worth more five years from now than less, right? And at some point down the road, if it starts kicking off cash flow, when the property's ready to, like the first thing you want to do is make sure the property has enough cash in the bank account to handle all of its work and whatever it needs to do. But, you know, if you get the benefit of some cash flow on the way, great. But you got to look at these as, how do I minimize my risk and at the same time try to optimize my return? If you just go for the highest return, I can probably tell you nine times out of 10, you're going to find more risk down the road that's going to make that 
pro forma not do at all what it's supposed to do. So off my soapbox and be back to you for a minute. <laughs> so tell me, whenever you were looking into um, the real estate world, how did you find your first deal? You mentioned your first one was from somebody who bought from a mom and pop. Then your next three were from mom and pop. Were you just walking around your local area, knocking on management doors of apartment complexes? Or were you, you know, looking on like LoopNet or were you sending out 100,000 mailers? How did you find your first deal? Oh gosh, we did everything. We didn't know what the hell we were doing. The first time we were trying to buy a deal, you know, we, uh, what I will say we did well is we chose, um, two markets. We, we just couldn't let ourselves do just one, but we, you don't want to get shiny red ball syndrome. You don't want to be trying to look at everything across the continental U S or the Southeast. You know, you want to get a, pick a city, pick a part of that city. And if you can pick a neighborhood, even do that. And just know every property in the neighborhood and try to get it before it winds up with a broker, right? Now, we did buy our first one with a broker, and it was a great experience. We actually got a pretty good deal on it. Looking back, it was we bought it like a 7.3 cap, which now, I mean, I haven't seen that in a while. We may soon. But, um, you know, it was it was a good, comfortable deal to buy. And, and so, you know, we, we, we combed LoopNet. We talked to brokers. We went driving for dollars. I mean, all the little acronyms and names you can think about, we did it. And, you know, I will, I will tell you, if you're looking for apartment buildings, whether you're an investor or a, uh, aspiring operator, mailers, I don't think are really going to get you very far. I mean, do them, you might get 0.1%, but you know, on mailers anyway, just on single family houses where everybody has them and nobody's sophisticated, you get what, like a 1% response rate when I'll tell you, I mean, I, I'm a rep, I'd like to say I'm a relatively sophisticated multifamily owner at this point. And I, if I get a mailer, it goes in the trash. Like I, there's no point in looking at it. Cause I know without a shadow of a doubt, it's either somebody inexperienced or it's someone who's going to try to lowball offer me and try to get a deal. Right. Um, whereas if, if I'm selling a multifamily deal, I'm probably taking it to a broker because I'm smart enough to know that's where you're going to get typically the best offer. Um, and so that's, uh, that's just my opinion. You know, I, I don't think those are areas you want to spend your time if this is the asset class you're looking at, because people are, if they own a multifamily property for the most part, not always, if you're sub 50 units, it's questionable, but beyond that, it, it's, um, pretty much they know what they're doing and they're probably not just going to let it go to, you know, an off market situation. Now you mentioned that's if they know what they're doing, when did you get to the point where you thought, I know what I'm doing? You know, I still don't know if I know what I'm doing, to be honest with you, but 200, 250 million dollars later, um, it, you learn every day. Right. And so I think we, we got comfortable pretty quickly that, okay, we, we kind of quit having imposter syndrome, you know, that, okay, we can do this. This is, you know, this has, this has physics and attributes and, and behaviors, and we just have to understand them. We made mistakes along the way, not things that, that were like bad investments, but mistakes as an, oh, we should have done this instead of that. Or maybe if we had approached it this way instead of that, we would have had a different outcome. So you, you learn through scars and stripes over the years. And, um, you know, I'd say, I'd say we're very comfortable with what we've accomplished and encountered in the past. But I would say, especially today, if you're an operator at all, or if you're an investor watching your operators handle today, Anyone who owns a deal right now is experiencing something that hasn't happened in 50 years. And so it is, it's important to realize that we are all going through some new growth and learning and I'm thankful for it. You know, you can think about it as woe is me, life is hard, 
Or you can think about it in terms of, wow, you know, the good Lord has blessed me to be alive in this time where I'm getting to see cycles in quarters, not years. And we're getting to see, you know, things change faster than they ever have and learn how to react, you know? So I think if you've been in real estate for 15, 20, 30 years, you're learning more right now than you did, than you have in the past 10, you know? And so that's not to say that real estate's in trouble. Some people are in trouble. I'd say probably about 10% of, of apartment owners are really in trouble. And it's because they've got bad debt products that are probably going to mature on them and they, they're going to have to cash in refi somehow. I mean, that's how you fix it. It's not like you're not going to see massive foreclosures, I don't think. I think what you're going to see is people are going to sell lower than they bought it for if they, have to, if they can't get the money to, to refinance the loan out. Or they're going to have to do bring in mezzanine financing or prep or something like that. But I mean, in general, you know, just just to summarize it, operating line is pretty good in most markets. I mean, some markets have seen some mild rent softening, but okay, fair. You're not getting renewals of fifteen percent anymore. You're getting eight. Okay, I feel really bad for you. My heart's bleeding. Oh, the humanity. You know, and so if you think about that. Really, the challenge is the expense line, folks. I mean, it, it's uh, you're seeing property taxes. States are trying to claw back their inflation recovery and property taxes, especially in Texas. You're seeing the insurance market in turmoil nationwide. Uh, some states are much worse than others. And you're seeing general in general payroll and repairs and maintenance just cost more than it used to, right? And not to mention debt. The bigger challenge right now is just, you know, getting things to cash flow and, and mitigate the damage on expense rise, you know? Yeah. How do you think it's changed for investors who are just getting started now as opposed to, you know, five, 10 years ago, pre, well, obviously pre-COVID, but, you know, what do you t tell newer investors now that maybe you didn't necessarily have to before? Is it just that, um, you know, you have to look at the deal past this year? How has the, the new investor's mindset shifted when you're talking to them? You know, I think um, it's kind of two mindsets, right? I think if you're a new investor and you're not comfortable with distressed assets, and I'll, I'll explain what that is in a minute, don't chase high IRR right now. Because what I'll tell you is most of what is bought today that's a quality asset is probably going to give about a 10, maybe 12% IRR. You're not going to, or just to say 10 to 12% return, okay? You're not going to see, and that's not cash flow, that's total return, that annualized return. So if you held it for five years, expect to get, you know, when all said and done and all the chips are down 12% per year. I think the days of, of hitting 15 to 20 are gone for now. They're not gone forever, but you know, the prices we're buying at now, unless we see things get completely white hot again in the next five years, I don't think you can bank on that. So what I would say is if, if you don't have high risk tolerance, there's still great operators out there, us or many others. But what you're going to see is we're not showing massive, massive returns. We're showing what's probably going to be realistic. And if we get surprised in their upside, then great. What I would not do is get in bed with someone who's promising the moon and you're only going to be frustrated when you get a 15 or a 12 instead of a 20. Okay, so so if you're going for a quality asset, think of it that way. They're just not they're, they're just not going to be a massive upside based on cap rate compression. It's, it's a slim chance, rather. If you're comfortable with distress, I would tell you now is the time to be acquiring assets that are in trouble. And what I'll tell you about assets that are in trouble is I don't care what your operator puts on paper. It's not going to cash flow for the first year or two or three. It's just not, okay? Unless they put a whole bunch of extra cash in there and they're basically giving your own money back to you in a distribution, which is more like an annuity than investment. So don't do that. 
but you know, if you can, if you have the patience and you can look at, at the five-year horizon and realize, okay, someone who's selling an asset that's in the seventies on occupancy or fifties or forties, or maybe it's physically distressed, or maybe it's in foreclosure. If you can get into a couple of those where you're getting real good basis right now, I think you, you can't lose as long as you have a good operator at the helm. Right. And now I, I would be, I would challenge you if you're going to step into the ring right now, realize that you're stepping into the ring when Mike Tyson is throwing punches. Okay. And so that means that you need to be ready for things to not go according to plan. You need to be ready that, okay, I may need more money than I thought I did. You may be, you need to be ready that the thing may not cash flow well for a while. And so just put more money in the deal than you think you do. Cause I promise you the kit, the one kiss of death, if you're dealing with, I'm going to call it retail equity, not institutional, not, not major, major capital partners. But if you're raising money and you are dealing with individuals, the kiss of death in this business is to ask for a capital call down the road. So what you, what I would rather see people do is overfund deals, put more money in there that even if it shows the return is lower, put more money in there than you think you do build in margin because it's much easier to say, Hey, guess what? We did all the work and we've got a hundred grand left over. Let's distribute it back than to say, Hey, we underfunded by a hundred grand. I need more to come in. Right. It's a much, it's a much different conversation. Okay. And I'll bring it'll fix the returns when you give it back. It's just a little IRR hit. So that's the biggest thing I would say is if you, if you're getting in the ring today and you're, and you're not experienced in what's going on right now, just expect that things are going to cost more than you think they will. They're going to take longer than you think they will. And you're going to meet more resistance. And that's just, it costs money. Time costs money. <laughs> and so how do you know when you're, what should an investor be looking at? You know, we talked about the distressed assets. Whenever you look at a property, how do you know the difference between a distressed asset and a doomed asset? And a doomed asset. Um, I'd say a doomed asset is is very, very few and far between. And so what I would ca- I would classify a doomed asset as the market itself is in spiral. So think about, and I, I'm going to ignorantly say Detroit, because I still in my mind think Detroit's in a terrible situation, but what Detroit has been, where people were moving away, jobs were leaving, rents were dropping, that is a doomed asset. You're literally catching a falling knife that's going to fall on your toe and cut it off, Okay. So don't buy that where the, if the, if the ocean around the asset, okay, like think about a, a ship in the sea, if the ocean around the asset around the, the boat is a hurricane category five, you're going to have a hard time not going under no matter how well you sail that boat. Right. But if you can think about an asset where, okay, it's distressed, but it's in Austin, Texas, or it's in Nashville, Tennessee, or wherever it is. And it's in an area where you know, like the area is doing very well. People are coming in. If all I need is time and money and I can fix this, that's a distressed asset you want to fix. But, you know, and that's probably distressed because the person driving the ship made a bad decision somewhere along the line, right? Now, that, that's the difference. You just, you just don't want to be buying an asset where it's, the problem is not the asset, it's things out of your control, i.e. the market. Yeah. And- what do you, when you're looking at this, you mentioned, you know, a good operator, a good captain. How do you, you know, as an investor, when you're looking at something and whether it's yourself, well, how do you know if you're going to be a good, uh, good ship captain, or if you're looking to get in as an investor, how do you tell if you're getting on the ship that isn't going to sail into that category five? Yeah, that's, that's very important. And I think what you have to understand is whatever the, whatever the, operator, right? Or they're the person you're investing with. 
whatever they put on paper is nothing but a plan. It's a map, right? And so after you may say, yeah, the map looks pretty good, right? But if I have to drive from here to Albuquerque, you know, you're not going to, like, you can't hold up the map and guarantee that I'm going to get there. It's going to be like, how well can I follow that map? How well can I follow directions and not make wrong turns or have a wreck along the way or something like that, right? Like, you have to know who I am to make sure you, like, are you willing to put your firstborn child in the car with me on, on the way to Arbuc Albuquerque, right? So think about it that way. So it has a lot to do with the kind of person they are. And this, there's no wrong answer to this, but think about it this way. Um, a good question to ask is, okay, and I, I've had this happen, so that, I'll tell you how I responded. If you have a situation where you find out that a wheelchair-bound resident is on the third floor and it, you, you took over the property that way, you didn't put them there, and they're asking to be moved, what do you do, right? The answer is not, well, you know, if they don't pay rent a victim, you know, which was what the prior guy tried to do. The answer to us is move them to the first floor, pay for it, like put a, be a good human and fix the situation, you know? So if you, if you're a good human, you need to invest with good humans. If you're not a good human and that does that just say, oh, well, that pisses me off thinking about paying for her to move. She can do it her damn self. Then you need to invest with that kind of person, or you're going to be frustrated with the moral decisions that person makes. So it starts with moral decisions. And then as far as being a good captain of the ship, you know, if your operator isn't, if you ask, how are we going to manage cash and cash flow on this on this project? If they can't answer those two questions, they don't know their head from their rear end. And the reason is cash flow, like we're all taught to underwrite properties, okay? And that's cash flow. You're looking at how cash comes in, is collected, and what expenses we have and how it goes out. But you can have a cash problem with good cash flow. And so you have to make sure that you're, if you, especially if you're doing a heavy like remodel and stuff like that, you want to really understand like, okay, well, the loan that they're getting, the capital they're raising, the work they're wanting to do, the property's not going to fund all that, right? There needs to be cash in the bank and management of that cash to make sure that it's, that's going down. So my example here is, you know, if, if it's a situation where they're getting a basic loan for a loan to value and they're putting all the renovation money in the bank. It's pretty easy answer. It's, oh yeah, we're going to put all the money in a storage tank and we're going to deplete it slowly one at a time. If the answer is, well, we're going to get it on a loan from a lender and the lender's going to hold it and they're going to give it to us after we do the work, well, you need to be asking questions. Okay, well, how much money do we have to, that we can spend? And then we ask them for money back and they give it back. Because like there, there's a cash problem there. You may have to spend a million dollars before they'll give you a million back. You know, and so there, there's always like, that is the biggest thing you have to be focused on is how is your team going to manage cash and cash flow? You know, because it's really about the health of the business more so than the health of the real estate. You know, this is a business that happens to have real estate behind it. And just like any business, you got to have money in the checking account. You got to have cash flow coming in to cover expenses going out and ideally enough free cash flow you know, to pay investors distribution. So that's the, and it's all common sense. Like this doesn't have to be a complex answer you don't understand. If you can't, if they can't simply explain it to you in a way that you understand, because anyone on this call is a smart human being, okay? Like if you're, if you're even thinking about investing, you understand the basics of, of, of what I'm talking about here. If it doesn't make sense in your mind and it, and you just feel like, well, maybe I'm not smart enough to get it. No, that's not it. If they can't explain it to you in simple terms, they don't understand, it, okay? So that's really the two things in my book is, 
of course there's experience, right? I, I don't always say experience is a big one. Like you, you want them to know what they're doing in business, but if they haven't had 10 exits, like I'm okay with that as long as they can make me comfortable that they're a good operator. If it's a good person or a person like you, you know, morally and a person who can understand to you how the business plan is going to work and how you're going to have cash and cash flow throughout the, the whole period, it's kind of your biggest, you know, testers, if you will. So in the single family world leading up to COVID and during COVID, we saw, you know, basically not enough homes were being built and we were massively under, um, you know, we had a massive inventory problem. I know when the, when COVID happened, you know, obviously construction starts went down. I think last I read that multifamily permits were up a little bit more than single family were in terms of rebounding. Are you at all concerned or excited about the inventory situation with multifamily that's being created? Well, yes and no. I mean, I think, so by my count, the we're, we're short about 4 million homes in the U.S., which is about 1%. So it's not a huge amount, but we are still short 4 million homes, okay? And so we're also short, I think it's it's changing. It's closed, the gap is closing fast, but we're short about 1 million rental units. And there's a lot of deliveries that are happening right now. So I think multifamily supply and demand is going to kind of be in balance, but the, in terms of that supply, but the fact that we still have a home shortage is still pushing more demand on rentership than, because there's just not enough homes, right? So it's like if we had enough homes, I think the world would be in a, in a happy medium for now. So, you know, I think that's the bigger driver on the supply and demand than the multifamily shortage because what's happening in multifamily Developments take about three years to get entitled and build and leased up, right? And so when you look back in 2020, a lot of money went into development because people were like, I don't know how things are going to operate right now. I'm going to put my money in development. Three years from now, it'll, it'll be ready to go, right? So that's what happened. A lot of stuff started in 2020. And it's 2023, and a lot of stuff is now delivering. So I, we're seeing in a lot of markets kind of an influx of supply in, in all your, your hotter markets that you've seen which, you know, I think is kind of, it, it's causing an absorption problem, but it's going to be something where I think we start to level out on that supply a little bit. But now we have another problem forming. Interest rates have now blown up, right? And guess what? Most of those, the stuff that was going to start in 2023 and late 2022, numbers don't make sense anymore, right? And so there's a lot of projects that have been either deferred or canceled, you know, uh, entirely. And so now we have another gap forming, whereas we had an influx of development in 2020 that kind of helped us catch up. We now have a gap forming. And so if it's my opinion that three years from now, we're going to see a very large gap in deliveries, which is, so I think, you know, what is it? It's late 2023, 2025, 2026. I think we are going to experience a large gap in, in, in supply, but you also have to think about the people, right? And the people we have to think about what happened a generation ago, right? Who was born back in the day, 15, 20 years ago, and is now coming of age to go rent an apartment, right? And so when you think about that, I think we still have, and, and the, you know, predictions on what their behavior might be, you couple that with a shortage of, of uh, apartment units, and it's a great time to be in this space because if you're if you're if you're learning your if you have your training wheels on right now and you're kind of learning this business, I think you're going to be positioned to capitalize on a pretty good season. You know, I mean, spring always follows winter, folks. We're in winter right now, whether anyone wants to admit it or not. But 
spring always follows winter. And I think 2025, 2026, there's going to be a really nice spring coming. So where do you see the the real estate market in, you know, the next one to two years? You especially, you know, you mentioned some of the issues people are having with their loans as the, you know, as they're having to refinance and they're having issues mm-hmm. with the fact that their terms are not at all what they were planning whenever they first went into it. Uh, so where do you see it? And the values have kind of softened a little bit. Where do you see it in one or two years? Are we back to kind of where we don't have to worry as much about, you know, properties that are coming out? Or are we still worried? What are you thinking there? You know, and, and I, I own both of these. So I, I have perspective. I've earned the right to talk perspective on both. But I think on the on the housing side, most people that own a house are not on a floating rate loan. People haven't done that since 2008, right? Adjustable rate mortgages is what they were called back then. And most people have locked in sub four, if not sub three, some of the twos, interest rates for 30 years, right? I mean, basically you're not giving that up if you're a homeowner, unless you have a life event and you're like, you have to move because you just like married and are part of the Brady Bunch and now you have six kids, like you're not moving, you know? And so I think the the, the single family, we're not going to see a big amount of single family fallout like we thought we would. And I, like, I, I kind of joke that the recession we're in, I, I think we're in a recession, the recession we're in is really a rich people's recession. It's not really affecting the wage earner that much. And so if you own a house, you have a fixed mortgage in your wage earner, you probably don't even know what the heck's going on. You're like, yeah, you're talking about it, but I don't feel it. And so I think that's that you're not going to see a lot of renters coming out of that, like distressed housing situation. Real, real estate on the commercial side, I think it depends on the sector you're in. I mean, office is still in a lot of trouble, mainly because we we haven't recovered more than I think 65% nationally of what we were before. It's a pretty, pretty staggering number. So if you owned assets in the office space, which by the way are notoriously institutional and typically not very much profit margin, you're really underwater right now. So I think there's a big reset due there. You know, the nicer office will prevail, the older office will get converted or demolished, you know, and there'll be a new equilibrium in the next five years. You know, talking about retail, and um and industrial and all that kind of stuff i don't see too much i mean recession will hurt retail obviously because people won't be spending as much i don't see as much trouble in in industrial or anything else and then multifamily you know i'm just kind of talking about the big four here and in multifamily um you do have some of these bridge loans that are becoming due and i think the the creativity of the owners between now and then is going to determine who gets in trouble and who doesn't. Those who are just deferring and hoping the world's going to get better, hope is not a strategy, and you're probably going to wind up having to see them sell uh, at a lower price than they want to, which is going to be somebody else's good deal. Um, In isolated situations, you'll you'll see big foreclosures like you did in Houston recently. Um, But for the most part, you know, anyone who's got debt that is not maturing, you know, the, like, like I mentioned that unless you bought a really skinny deal, which is, uh, there'll be an isolated cases of those. Most people are just going to kind of operate right through this. So I I don't see mass fallout coming. I think 2024, there's going to be more than there is this year. So I think you're going to see some people come to terms and say, well, I guess I better just go ahead and sell this because I don't want a capital call my investors or, you know, the numbers have changed on this dramatically because of taxes and insurance. I don't want to be there anymore or, or whatever. So you're going to see some some lower or higher cap rate sales, lower price sales. I don't really think you're going to see a situation where um, it's mass chaos, mass foreclosures. I, I think it's pretty clear that despite what we want to say about the Fed and the banking system, they've, they've taken great lengths to make sure that doesn't happen. 
Um, and so we'll, we'll see, but I, I just, I just can't see them letting that happen in an election, you know? Yeah. So we are focused in the single family world, a lot in the Midwest, Southeast, where are you seeing opportunities right now in the multifamily space where, and what, is there one market in specific that you're really excited to either be in or evaluating and thinking I need to get into that market very soon? Yeah, I'm really, I'm really happy with the lower Midwest and and some Belt regions. Um, I think the 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 rent and this goes for single family too. The rental potential is just outstanding in those regions. Um, but I think the Sun Belt regions have been hit with a bigger insurance problem, um, and the price run up from 2020 to now. And this is single family or multifamily. Like just the real estate price run up in the last three years has been real drastic. And so I think there's probably the most opportunity to gain from things that sell over the next two years. I think you're going to, you're going to get a pretty good discount and then that door is going to shut and it's going to be closed forever. You know, so for the foreseeable future, um, I think if you know what you're doing and, and you are a local person, there's some markets where a lot of people are leaving. And so if you can get an, like in a, in a good neighborhood of California, for example, if you're comfortable with investing in a California or in New York, you know, there's a lot of, of good buys to be had there. Honestly, I'm not that player, but it is um, sometimes said in the name, in the words of Sam Zell, right? It was the mobile home park guy. If you go after things that others aren't as excited about, you're liable to find some pretty good deals. And so while everybody's looking at the Sun Belt in the Midwest, you might be looking in areas that they're leaving. And as long as it's not, it's in a, in a neighborhood that is stable and still there, you may get a pretty good property value. All right. So is there one market in particular you're excited about other than potentially California? I, I don't love California and New York because I don't say you co-own your properties with your tenants. Um, one in particular, market in particular, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about Indiana, the state of Indiana. I'm in Evansville. I think it's a great market. Um, it is one of the most landlord-friendly states and like tax-friendly states I've ever operated in. And I think now's a good time to get some good cap rate deals there. So I, I'm personally, I'm, I'm really an, an Indiana fan right now. I'm a little surprised Evansville doesn't have all the, whenever I've looked at the demographics there, it doesn't seem like a place that would be primed for a big explosion. What do you, what do you like about that market? You know, I tend to not, sh so there, there's two things you have to think about there, right? And, and it's, it's, you have to do your market research and watch growth and all that kind of stuff. But I, you know, I will caution you not to chase the highest and best growth stuff, right? Because who else is looking at those reports? Every other investor in the country, right? And so if you can concentrate, like uh, the, the IRR report is a great report to look at of just ranking cities in the country, for example. If you can look at, at, at cities that may be middle of the road, like they're, they're not, you know, the worst and they're not the best, but they're middle of the road, but they made a big jump, you know? Um, the last several years, Evansville had made a big jump and we felt it. We, we've owned there for a couple of years now. We got a great basis and we bought in and the numbers are just great, you know? So you don't have to be in the Austin, Texas of the world or, or the Nashvilles of the world to make money. You can make money in the Evansvilles, and the Chattanoogas, and the Huntsville. Huntsville's kind of a sexy market now. But my point is you don't have to be the, the in the markets. Everyone knows where they are, right? Um, they're all you have to have happening is the line is going up on, on the economic side and you have the ability to buy something at decent enough basis where you can make money and then ride that line. Even if it's not the biggest, maddest roller coaster in the theme park, it could still be pretty fun. Yeah. Well, Chad, well, I should say, uh, Mr. Investment Maverick, 
Really appreciate you spending some time with us today and educating our uh, our listeners here. Obviously, the website is thequatroway.com. That's thequatroway.com, even though somehow they have five people in that quattro. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll forgive them for that. But tell us a little bit about kind of what y'all have going on and anything else you want to leave our listeners with. Yeah, just for fun, the Quattro way is actually about our four principles, not our four people. Ah. There, there used to be four people. We added one. So, you know, marketing had a different play there. But anyway, it's all about people, property, profits, and then philanthropy, right? A group of people coming together around a property to make some profit, and some of which is used for philanthropy. So more about that on our website, but that's the kind of people we are. Um, you know, it, it's amazing to be able to do good while doing well in this world. And, you know, we we focus on, I think, as you heard in my in my interview here, we focus on apartment and unit-based investments, so we'll do self-storage and and uh, mobile home parks as well. But primarily, we are an apartment uh, group. You know, we have several investment funds, and and so we ha- we have everything from fixed income funds to you know full-on equity investments and apartments. Uh, but we do focus mainly on value-add quality buildings in secondary markets, like in Evansville, for example, like a Decatur, Alabama, not Huntsville, a Decatur. You know, so we, we, we look at the, the stuff that's close to the really cool stuff and we usually get better basis that way. But, you know, we're good humans. If you're a good human and you like doing good while doing well, love if you'd reach out. If you're the kind of person who cringed when uh, when I told that story earlier about moving the, the wheelchair bound lady down to the first floor at our expense, don't call me. We're not a good fit. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, we'd love to have a conversation and see how we can help you. All right. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us. To all our listeners, thank you for joining us today and learning more about your real estate journey. If you're interested in the single-family world, you can check us out at renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com. You can schedule a time to talk with us, see our inventory there. And if you have any questions, don't forget to send them to podcasts at renttoretirement.com, and we will answer them in a future episode. That's podcasts at renttoretirement.com. Really appreciate the time you spent educating yourself today, and we'll talk to you on the next episode. Thanks for watching the Rent to Retirement YouTube channel. Check out some of our other videos, like this one, or this one here.